John chapter 3. Not really a uh, Palm Sunday sermon, forgive me. Uh, next week we actually are having a resurrection sermon. I'm, I'm departing from John. I decided to do that. I wasn't initially going to do that. Um, I would tie it into the resurrection, but decided to change that. So we'll be in First Peter chapter 1 next Sunday. But now, John 3, picking up in verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John was also baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, This joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Let's pray. Father, this holy history that is recorded was written down for our instruction. These people are examples to us upon whom the ends of the ages has come. These events remind us of the power of self-deception, pleasure and idolatry. They also remind us that you are faithful and work in us so that we might be faithful. Texts like these are one way in which you guard us from such temptations. Instruct us now that we might enjoy the earthly benefits of our eternal salvation in Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. I imagine that there's no one here who doesn't like a good love story. Don't you like when you meet a new couple, sometimes sitting, how did you meet? How did you get to know each other? Uh, And often that includes, who was also involved in this process? Because when it comes to a wedding or a love story, there's usually supplemental characters that kind of go along with this process. This week on uh, Facebook, someone had asked, You know, how did you meet? It was one of those questions. And so in my mind, I kind of went back to those days when I first met Amy. And uh, I haven't told all of you this, so some of you this is new stuff, some of this this is old stuff, but who cares? Let's take a moment and just think about this. There was a young family, well, actually a young couple, that uh, started to attend the church I pastored in Winter Haven. They had been going to a PCA church on the other side of town, and they decided to start coming to this church, check it out, see what was happening for various reasons. Uh, They were increasingly uncomfortable, I think, with what was going on at the other church. 
And uh, I was getting to know them, and what I did not know is that that woman had gone to college with my future wife. And so Amy found out, oh, you're going to a new church. This is the days of instant message on Yahoo. Who does that anymore, right? That's how, that's how long ago this was. And so she's like, jokingly, any single guys there? To which they went, oh, there's one. <laughs> and so they talked her into coming down for a weekend, and that was actually the weekend for our Valentine's Day party. And so I met Amy for the first time uh, at our Valentine's Day party at Good Shepherd Presbyterian Church there in Winter Haven, Florida, and uh, noticed the blue eyes. And then, so it was really two people, a young couple, Roel and Amy Ubungan, who introduced us to one another. There's someone in this story who has been in- introducing others to the bridegroom in this story, these events. And so we see that God often uses others to make matches, to bring couples together. Not just married couples, but we see Christ and his bride, the church, brought together initially by John the baptizer. The big idea this morning is that King Jesus came to claim a bride. It's going to take a while for us to get there because we have some things to go through first. Let's, I've got three R's. That's how I've organized this this morning, three R's. And the first is resist discontentment as Christ's servants. And this really flows out of the occasion for this discussion in verses 22 through 26. This is sort of a, a switch. We've gone from you know, the, the nighttime discussion with Nicodemus and the uh, statements by John as he thinks about these things that Jesus has said. Uh, and we're about to go to Jesus uh, in Samaria, meeting the woman at the well. And so this seems like a strange kind of thing here. Suddenly we reverted back to this discussion of John the baptizer. This section does do two important things, though. It does transition us from Jerusalem, where that discussion with Nicodemus took place, to the Judean countryside, from which they will then move into Samaria. It also reveals to us the faithfulness of John the servant of God, and the baptizer of people. The ministries of Jesus and John the baptizer overlapped for a short period of time, and this, of course, caused some level of confusion. In fact, this passage is slightly confusing, because it says here that Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. Yet, in chapter 4, We see in verse 2, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. And so John then, in a parenthetical statement in chapter 4, clarifies some of the issues for us as to what was going on. It was not Jesus himself who was baptizing other people there in the Judean wilderness at that point. It was actually his disciples who were doing this. Perhaps they were some of John's former disciples who hadn't left that whole baptism thing behind yet, that John the Baptist kind of baptism, not Christian baptism. They're different. That's a sermon for another day. Okay, We only have so much time in a given sermon. But we see here from the text that John was at Anon, near Salim. Very interesting, because Anon means springs, and Salim means peace. 
The reason why it's named, this place is called Springs, is because there were seven springs within a quarter mile. And so when the text says that there was much water there, the idea is not, oh wow, there's lots of deep water, but many places in which to do baptisms. So I know some of our Baptist friends and brothers like to jump on this and say, see, lots of water necessary. That's really more the idea of lots of places to baptize, not so much lots of deep water to immerse people. Although, if you want to immerse, that's okay. That's good too. I'm not going to talk about mode of baptism here this morning either. That's another thing. That's another sermon. (laughs) What's important for us to remember, however, is that John has already testified that Jesus was the Messiah. And Mike was talking a lot about that in Sunday school. I'll give a little plug for his Sunday school lesson this morning. He was talking about the different views uh, that people had of what the Messiah was going to do. And John had his own understanding as well that perhaps was not 100% in line with what Jesus' under, understanding of his mission was. But as I read this, I think, why does John still have disciples? We know that some of them have already left, the, left John and gone to follow Jesus. I'm surprised he hasn't kicked the rest of them out already. Why are you still with me? He's the Christ, not me. Go. But who am I to say? So this, is, this come, becomes a little confusing as we think about this. And we see that a controversy or a debate begins to break out. And so this leads me to believe they might be Presbyterians. We, we were examining a young man this week for, uh, for ordination, and one of the jokes that we had is that, you know, we Presbyterians will fight about almost anything. And so these guys are fighting about this issue of purification. They're, they're debating this with a man who is simply called a Jew. No more is given to us. We know that there were some Jewish sects that Mike has talked about in his Sunday school class as well, that uh, for them, purification was an important thing, and so they didn't take a bath every day in order to feel physically clean, to get all that dirt off. Yesterday, we went to the air show, the wind's blowing all that stuff around. It felt very good to take a shower when I got home, get all that dirt off. They would wash every day for purification, not of the, not of the physical skin and stuff, but of the soul. Okay, so there were certain groups within Israel who advocated this sort of thing. And so that might be what this is about. They're debating these ceremonial washings. We don't know because that's really not the point. The point is the occasion for the discussion that begins to take place between these men and John the baptizer. Because finally they come to him and they talk about how Jesus is baptizing over on the other side and we see that they claim that all are going to him. Is it hyperbole? Exaggeration? This idea that all are going to him? Are they using all in sort of a collective sense that all kinds of people are going to him? Because obviously not everybody was going to him. John's disciples hadn't gone to him. This Jew had not gone to him. And we would know, of course, that later not everybody comes to Christ. But what is happening here is that John the Apostle is revealing to us that they struggled with the growth of Jesus' ministry. Uh, There seemed to have been some element of envy or discontentment that has begun to arise within the ranks of John's disciples precisely because they see Jesus beginning to get more attention than John. 
John is their rabbi. They want John to get glory. They're concerned about this and raise this issue with him. They struggled in a sense with the lack of growth. I flicked the channels some, the other night. I usually don't do this. I was in a, a range of dish that I'm not usually in. Yes, the Christian stations. Used loosely, mind you. And there, I believe it was the son of Jimmy Swaggart, was talking about how he studied Pentecostal history and all the great outpourings of the Spirit. And here he was jumping up and down. Why not us? I don't jump it down, up and down a lot. So there you get, there it is, once a year. But that's sort of that, that sentiment. Why is their ministry going well, but our ministry not as much? Why do we see, you know, great work somewhere else, but not in our midst? Why not me? They're not the last men to worry about this. Pastors, unfortunately, regularly experience this temptation to envy other people's ministries. There are guys who don't like to go to presbytery precisely because all of those conversations take place. Oh, how's it going? Oh, we've added 45 new members this quarter, or whatever it may be. And so some people are, are tempted to discouragement and discontentment with where they are themselves because they, they see God doing things in other places. I've been here four years. Pete Rearman hadn't really started Holy Cross yet. They're bigger than we are. It's easy to fall into the temptation of thinking, why not us? Why not us? Why isn't God doing this amongst us? And it's not just pastors, members, elders. Imagine the disciples. We'll call these disciples like elders. Okay, it's, it's regularly, they experience this temptation themselves to sort of exalt a minister over Christ, which is exactly what's happening here. John's disciples are exalting him over Christ himself. They don't get it. They haven't gotten it yet. Okay? As we see from earlier in John chapter 3, they must be born again for them to have insight. They lack this spiritual insight to realize we need to leave John and go to Jesus. But right now, they're exalting John the baptizer over Jesus. Their focus is in the wrong place. They're, they're desirous for glory to the wrong one. And we need to resist this. We need to resist this uh, temptation towards discouragement, this temptation towards competition between like-minded churches, because it really is a cancer in the soul. Let's think for a moment of what happens in the book of Numbers. What happens repeatedly in the book of Numbers is the people grow discontent and begin to grumble, and bad things happen. They're not happy with the manna. God's not providing for them as in the way in which they want God to provide for them. And so he sends them so much quail that it's coming out of their your ears and they're sick of it by the time they're done. We, a couple weeks ago, we talked about the time in which they were discontent. They began to speak against Moses and then the, the poisonous snakes came into their midst. 
I'm afraid to talk about this. Steve Boyer might be afraid another rattlesnake will show up today. Okay. Korah led a rebellion against Moses. This, they wasn't happy with how Moses was leading God's people. We did better in Egypt. Why don't we go back? The earth opens up and swallows those rebellious men. His own brother and sister, Aaron and Miriam, raise a voice in criticism, the discontentment, the envy, the grumbling. They don't like that Moses is getting all the press, you see. They're just as important as Moses. And so she is struck with leprosy for a time. Do you see how dangerous that discontentment can be? So important it is for us to resist that temptation when it rises within our hearts. Proverbs 14, verse 30. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. It's a cancer. It's a cancer that kills you spiritually, not physically. And so, others' prosperity often breeds discontentment in our hearts, which we must resist. And the the second two R's are really about how we resist that. First off, we rest in God's providence and our calling to produce contentment. And so there's a question here. The disciples, his disciples have raised this idea of everyone is going after Jesus. Will you? Is John going to, in a sense, submit with how things are going? Or is John going to try... And is he going to fall into this trap of the disciples did? Is he going to fall into discontentment too? Is he going to join them in this struggle? And John, in a sense, rebukes them, for he says, unless it is given to him from heaven. This idea that we only have what we have because it is granted to us from heaven. John the baptizer is resting in God's sovereignty over his ministry. I have the people I have because it has been given to me by God himself. And Jesus has the people he has because it has been given to him by God himself. There's someone more important in this equation than me and what I want, says John, the baptizer. And so narrowly, if we view this very narrowly, you know, meaning exactly what he's speaking about here, this is about the size of John's and Jesus' respective ministries and their impact. And so he recognizes their size and impact is granted from God above. And so let's go back to Holy Cross and Pete Rearman. The people who are here have, have been given by God. And the people who are over there have been given to Holy Cross and Pete Rearman by God. It's easy to look and say, you know, we were talking about this a little before the service, they've got kids growing out of the ears over there. They've got so many young couples, it's, it's crazy. Okay? And so it's easy to, to look at the growth and all the hubbub and, and having to expand because, because they've got so many kids and go, wow, why, why can't we have that? But you know what? I'm sure Pete sometimes looks over here and goes, man, I really could use some older Christians to give me a hand. (laughs) Some more mature people to help me with all these young couples. It's all given by God. There's no need to kind of look across the highway and sort of, you know, 
wrestle with discontent. There's no need for that. We rest in the sovereignty of God that He has brought, brings the people He wishes to bring so that we may minister to them and they may minister to us. Discontentment exalts someone else's ministry in a negative way, a bad way, a threatening sort of way. Pride often exalts our own ministries, makes us out to be better than we think we are. But resting in the sovereignty of God, that enables us to enjoy the success and prosperity and the status of both ministries, or even many more. But it also enables us to exalt in Christ, as opposed to our own stuff. And that's really the point. Rejoicing in what God is doing in all faithful churches, in our city, in our state, in our presbytery, beyond. It's not about us. But we can also look at this more broadly. This idea that um, unless it is given to someone from heaven or from God. For instance, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7 For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? And so uh, there in Corinthians, Paul is sort of opening this, this door wide. You know, all of these good things that you have, your status, your wealth, the spiritual gifts you might have, all of these things, you have received them, you have not gotten them for yourself. So why are you boasting about them? Not only that place, but James chapter 1, verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Where is the place for pride? When you have merely received these good gifts from the hand of the Father. Philippians chapter 1. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. That first part is very consistent with what we saw in John 3 about being born again. That it's by the Spirit. That no one controls it. It was granted on behalf of the Philippians that they would believe in Christ. It's not about what they wanted. It's about what God accomplished and worked through them. Then there was the bad side, the suffering for his sake. But all of these things are granted. And so we see the sovereignty of God in all of our circumstances. We need to keep this in mind. That God is engaged in all of our circumstances. There's no little corner of our lives where he's not involved and engaged. And that all that we have, is, and all that we don't have, is under His purview, His will, His wise, holy, and good will. It's humbling. It should help us to be thankful for what we do have. It helped Paul 
Later in Philippians, he mentions that, uh, not that I am speaking of being in need, but I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. The secret of contentment is something that Paul had learned. And really, do you know what it is? It's resting in God's wise, holy, and good purposes. Even if, especially if, you don't understand them. All right. Not only did John say that, but he said, you yourselves bear me witness. In other words, they witnessed John's testimony about Jesus. And the problem is, apparently, they didn't necessarily believe his testimony about Jesus. But John says, I have been sent. John is resting in his calling from the Father to do what he is doing. The only reason I'm here is because I have been sent. He saw himself as having a purpose that is connected to the ministry of Jesus. That he comes to point the way to Jesus and then step back. Let's think of that that couple who came to the church and introduced me to Amy. They were only there a few years. Among the reasons why they probably came was so that Amy and I could meet and get married. There were other good things that came out of that as well. It's not the only reason why they were there. But we see God's providence, God's calling in various things. Each servant has his own call. And so it's important for us to understand our call. Where, what has God called us to do within the body of Christ? How are we to serve? And if we know our calling, then we are simply to be faithful in it. We're not to envy other people's calling. It does no good for me to listen to all of those people sing this morning and go, why can't I sing? That does no good. We rejoice in the gifts God has given and the people who freely use those gifts for the benefit of the body. And we use the gifts we have been given for the benefit of the body. Not only did John say that, but he said, He must increase, but I must decrease. He uses that phrase that we see from earlier in the chapter, you must be born again. That's the same idea. He must increase. It is necessary for him to increase. And likewise, it is necessary, not just nice, for me to decrease. These things are going to happen, John believes. They must happen. Again, John is speaking about the sovereignty of God in these matters. It's not up to him. It's not, you know, I must try harder. I must do better. He recognizes from places like Proverbs 21, which reads, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. The increase and the decrease come from the hand of God who turns hearts wherever he will. It's not just the king's heart. John is speaking here about the fact that Jesus is the main event. John himself is not. John knows this. 
John doesn't know how he's going to decrease. He does not yet know that he is going to be put into prison by Herod. He does not yet know that he is going to have his head cut off by Herod while he's in prison. He doesn't know the way in which he will decrease, but he does know he will decrease. But Jesus will increase. And so on that on Palm Sunday, as Jesus rides the foal of the donkey into Jerusalem, we see the streets are lined with people shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, laying the palm fronds down. His ministry, his significance had increased. And it's increasing still, as it covers most of the known earth. His name is known. His name is believed in. He continues to increase by the will of God. And so this is not this is about significance. John's significance begins to to wane while Jesus increases and as we are in Christ our significance must also decrease. It must become less and less about us and more and more about Jesus who is the king. Life is not about us. It's hard for us to hear that message sometimes. We make plans all the time. Our egos like to be stroked all the time. But it's not about us. And so one way that we resist is by resting and knowing that God is in charge and that He has given each of us a calling that we are to be faithful and fulfilling. As John himself was by the power of the Holy Spirit. But thirdly, we rejoice that the Messiah is winning His bride. Now we get back to the love story. There is a reason why John did not try to cling to the crowds that were, that were beginning to go to Jesus. He's trying not to usurp the Messiah. And he reveals the Messiah here as bridegroom. He reveals the assembly as the bride. And he recognizes that he can't have the bride to himself. John knows his scriptures, I'm sure, from the Old Testament. He knows that in places like we read earlier from Hosea, that the people of God belong to the Messiah as a bride. That he brings her out into the wilderness to speak tenderly to her, to allure her, to claim her as his very own. But it's not just Hosea 2. This imagery is in, sorry, yeah, Hosea. This imagery is in Isaiah 62 as well. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your, your God rejoice over you. So again, that, that pairing of the imagery. He's like a bridegroom rejoicing over his bride as he, as he rejoices over his people. Jeremiah 2, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. And so he's looking back at how early in this marriage relationship, so to speak, Israel was following him as a bride. But there's also the vision ahead. Revelation 19, 21. In 19, let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. In 21, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, 
coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And so John is utilizing this rich imagery to make a point about who Jesus is and who he is. He's like my friend Roel. He's the one who introduces and rejoices. John is not just resting in his call and God's sovereignty, but he's also loving the bride and the bridegroom because he knows it is best for them to be together. Some commentators mention that ancient Sumerian and Babylonian law make it illegal for a, for a best man to marry the bride. Not sure what happens in between those two things. I'm not sure if he kills the guy or what. That wasn't clear. Uh, or maybe he dies of old age or something. But forever forbidden from ever marrying that woman. And you wonder if John is thinking about that as he speaks this. This woman is not mine. She belongs to someone else. I'm not going to try and claim her. She, can, she must go to Christ and not to me, he says. Very important for him as he understands this. And it's important for all servants of Christ to remember this. It's tempting for pastors to somehow almost think of the church as theirs. Now, they wouldn't go so far as to say, that's my bride. But to think of the church as their own instead of Christ's church. Just a servant. Supposed to be pointing to Christ. Not to myself. But we see, particularly in places like Corinthians, that that was exactly the problem. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. And what was going on? The next verse talks about how they were being led astray by these super apostles, these false teachers that had come into their midst. And so Paul was speaking like a best man. I need to keep you by the side of the man who is your husband. We must always remember that it is Christ's church. Augustine brings this out in his sermon on this. I see many adulterers, speaking of pastors here, or church leaders, or cult leaders. I see many adulterers who want to possess the bride he bought with such a price. Loved in her ugliness so that she would become beautiful. She was bought by him, set free by him, bejeweled by him, but they act with their words so as to be loved in the place of the bridegroom. Think about that for a moment. To come in, so to speak, as if you're the one who has made her beautiful, as though you're the one who has paid the bride price, that you come in and steal her love and affection. There are pastors who do that. There are cult leaders who do that trying to steal the bride from Jesus. And thankfully, John is not one of them. He recognizes that he could not pay the price for her. He is a faithful minister, a faithful steward, 
He wants to keep her as a pure virgin, awaiting the arrival of the bridegroom. And in fact, he says that he's already rejoicing. This joy of mine is now complete because he has heard the voice of the bridegroom coming to collect his bride. Coming, he doesn't quite understand probably fully, to pay the bride price with the blood on the cross. That's how he purchases her. And when John sees her, he says that my joy is complete. And so he rejoices. That's part of how he resists that temptation towards discontentment and envy. He rejoices because Christ has what belongs to him. And so we too can resist that temptation when we are tempted to be discontent. No matter where they're worshiping, Christ has those who belong to him. Instead of somehow thinking that they have to be ours too. Is what I'm saying making sense? Have I lost my mind? Ah, the joy that is complete, the decrease. Want to know the amazing thing that happened? I don't know if it's amazing, but our friends took my parents' place and provided the rehearsal dinner at our wedding. They cooked it. They served it. That sound amazing to you? It is to me. They didn't, par- they didn't partake in all of the joy. I mean, they were joy- rejoicing in what was happening, but they weren't there sitting with everyone laughing and joking and lovingly serving because they knew the the joy of the couple and the friends. And they were glad, they rejoiced to hear that voice of laughter, joy, and wonder in the other room. Kind of amazing when I think about it after all these years. What a gift. What servants' hearts. John had that same gift, that same servant's heart, rejoicing in the voice of Jesus. So the expansion of Jesus' ministry caused strife among John's disciples. Envy and discontentment are always ready to distract God's people from their calling. And so we must resist those temptations. We resist, first of all, by resting in God's providence, as well as our calling, which comes from Him. It's from above. We trust that King Jesus knows what He's doing and that he has us in the right place and at the right time. We also resist with rejoicing that whenever faithful churches grow, the bride of Christ is growing. We rejoice with King Jesus, the bridegroom. We rejoice because the gospel is really a love story that ends really well, although it's not always easy going to see that Christ dwells with his people forever and ever. A happy ending indeed. Let's pray. Father, we uh, ought to be humbled in many ways. 
For if we are part of this bride, it is not because we were beautiful or wise, charming, but in fact, uh, despite we, the fact that we probably lacked all of those things, but it has been granted to us to believe on him. That in fact, Jesus bought us to make us wise, to make us beautiful, to make us his. So Father, as we wrestle with discontentment, may we always go back to that. The numerous blessings you have given us in Jesus Christ, that our hearts can rest in him, satisfied in what we have, rejoicing that we belong to him. And we ask this in his name, amen.